how we apply our lives in, in our daily events. And God, we just pray that as we come out of the other side of this book, that we would look more like your son, that you would help us live whole, complete lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we first dive into the background of James, I, 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 there's a ton of background. When you start studying a book, you study the background of the book, there's a ton of information from the background that a lot of times is like, I don't even know why I need to know that. So I've tried to narrow that down to, to the important things that would apply to us as we look at this book. Um, so let's look at a few things um, that James is. A few things that James is. Number one, James is the brother of Jesus. Um, there's some debate about which James this is, but most scholars, pretty much every major scholar agrees that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is the James that would have been mentioned in the Gospels when, um, his, when Jesus' family came to visit him. And, and they said, hey, your, your family's here. James was there, right? This, this James would have been somebody who lived with Jesus. This James would have been somebody who sat at the table and had lunches and dinners with Jesus. Probably went out and did carpentry projects with Jesus. This is the guy that had the same earthly parents as Jesus. So he's highly influenced by Jesus's life, as you can imagine. And you can also imagine he's had a turn of heart towards Jesus, right? Uh, at one point in his life, like I mentioned, his family came to Jesus while he was teaching and they said, hey, he's acting crazy. But now we see in James in this book how he honors and glorifies Jesus. He honors and glorifies him so much that he even refers to Jesus as the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory. That's a big change in James's life. So James is the brother of Jesus, and he's highly influenced by Jesus's teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. As we read through this, you're going to think, man, I've heard this stuff before, and it's from Jesus, particularly in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that Sermon on the Mount. So James is the brother of Jesus. Second, James is Jewish. James is Jewish. Uh, James grew up in the Old Testament culture, uh, that Second Temple Judaism. He's going to use in this book, he's going to use all kinds of Old Testament references. He's going to talk about Abraham, Rahab, Job, Elijah. He's steeped in the Old Testament, and he really reads a lot like the book of Proverbs. Has anybody ever read through the book of Proverbs? It's, it's a really popular thing to take the book of Proverbs and read one chapter a day for 30 days because there's 31, there's 31 chapters in it. You can read it you know, every day for a month, 30 or 31 days. Um, the book of Proverbs, though, is interesting because it's, there's not really a string of thought that you follow through the whole book. It's just wise sayings. James is acting like such a, such a sage. He's acting like that. He's giving wise statements and a lot of times as you read through James, you're going to think, man, we just, we're shifting gears really hard right here. We were talking about favoritism. Now we're talking about like money. Like why, why is there such this big shift, this big change? Well, it's because James has given you lots of different wisdom that you can apply to your life. So James is the brother of Jesus. James is Jewish, so he's influenced by the Jewish scripture. Third, James is old. James is old, and here's what I mean by that. James is the leader of the very first church in Jerusalem. This is the James that we see in Acts 12 and Acts 15. This is the leader of that first church in Jerusalem. Um, and he's also 
the book of James is likely the first book that was written in the New Testament. This probably predates some of the Gospels as far as their writings go, right? Uh, Jesus didn't write the Gospels. Other people wrote about Jesus. So those would have been written after James. So James is probably the first book of the New Testament. So that means that James is in a handoff period from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? I love the Olympics, and I'm so pumped that I'm starting to see Olympic uh, commercials on. If you're watching NBC at all, you see some Olympic commercials every once in a while. When you see those people do the relay, it's amazing because you, you see these, these athletes that are running so fast. And, and, and when they do a relay, they run right up to the guy, behind, guy in front of them, and they hand that baton off, hopefully in a split second. Like you, you, you don't even notice it sometimes how quickly they can hand that baton off. But if you were to slow that race down, you would notice that if you had a baton and you handed it to the next guy, there would be a moment where both hands were on the baton, right? There's a moment when both hands are holding it and the other lets go. James is really in this period in his life. The Old Testament is being handed off to the New Testament and there's language in James that you're like, is he, is he kind of being an Old Testament person or a New Testament person? So as we read James, we have to realize that he's old. He's one of the first Christians, first Christian leaders writing one of the first Christian scriptures. There's some overlap in some of the Old Testament mindset and the New Testament mindset that we're going to see. So James is the brother of Jesus. He's Jewish. He's old. And fourth, James is a pastor. James is a pastor. As you read through this, you look at verse number one, chapter one, verse one, it says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. The dispersion. Maybe some of your verses say the diaspora. This is the, this is, these are the Jewish people who, have, who are spread out from Jerusalem. Those who would be Jewish but don't live in Jerusalem, right? They're, they're exiles, they're sojourners, they're traveling, they're, they're um, expats, whatever you want to call it. They're living their Jewish life in a context that's not Jewish. So James is writing. So this is likely a book that was collected by um, James or the people that were, were in James's church so that he could send out all these wise teachings that he had to the people who were out among the Gentiles. So he sees these people in the dispersion these are people who are not at home at where they are. They're not comfortable where they are. They're trying to figure out how to live a life for God among a people who don't want to live for God. James sees those people. He cares about those people. And he writes to those people in this book. This is meant for people who are trying to live a godly life in an ungodly place. Now, does that sound familiar? It sounds a little bit like Commerce America. Like Miami, America, right? Sounds a lot like us. We're trying to live a Christian life in a non-Christian place. And just like James wrote to these original people saying, I see you're in a difficult place and I want to help you live a, a, a good godly life. James says the same thing to us. He's going to address a lot of real-time earthy things. What I mean by earthy is like, He's going to talk about throughout this book things that you can relate to. 
These are things that you probably experience on a weekly basis, if not maybe a daily basis in your homes, in your lives, in your workplaces, school, whatever it might be. But here's the great thing about James. He takes these situations that you're going to be in and he applies the word of God to them. So while I say James is practical, it's also theological, which leads us to our second point of this, of this sermon today. We've seen the background of James in that important part. Now let's look at the theology of James, the theology of James. The word theology means the study of God, and it often gets a bad rap, in my opinion. You hear the word theology and you tune out, right? Because it's about um, the dusty, old, boring subjects and topics. These are the things that nerdy people talk about in seminary that really have nothing to do with the Christian life. Some of the classic theological arguments that you hear, one of the ancient ones is this, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? What does that have to do with anything? But that's something Thomas Aquinas, that great theologian from the past, talks about um, and addresses. So it's like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? The modern day equivalent might be something like, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick up? Right? It's funny. It might be fun to talk about. But at the end of the day, it's like, how does that really help me be a better person at work or love my wife better? How do those things apply? But as one theologian actually has defined theology, he says it this way. Theology is the application of scripture by humans to every area of life. And I think James does that maybe better than any other book of the Bible, taking scripture and applying it to every area of life. Because we're meant to, as Christians, we're meant to let this book and the wisdom from it invade every part of our life. There's no sectioning out what part of our life the Bible applies to. Um, the Bible applies to our home life. It applies to our work life. It applies to the things we say, the words we use, the wisdom we think with. It's meant to apply to us. So James is going to do that. There are several theological categories James has that he's going to take and apply to your life and use scripture to apply to that. So let's take a brief survey of some of those theological categories that are going to come up in James so that you can start to form boxes to know where to put the things James talks about. Um, Anybody who has kids knows they don't clean their room. It's, if their room gets clean, it's because you're probably cleaning it, right? So um, I don't know, for better or for worse, I've devised this system in the kids' rooms where we have lots of different boxes. If you've been to my house for community group or whatever, there's like four or five blue boxes um, that toys go in. Um, there's several other boxes too, but those, those, those boxes. So a lot of times when I clean up, I, I, I walk into the room, I take the broom. Okay, just the regular broom. I sweep everything, clothes, toys, trash, cups from last Sunday night's community group, whatever it is. I sweep it all up into a big pile and I will take those boxes and just line them up. Transformers box, Hot Wheel box, um, you know, football box, uh, Pokemon box, whatever it is, right? I line those boxes up. So that way, as we dig through that pile, the kids know, I was like, here, Judah, Transformer box. He can take it straight there. Here, Javen, Pokemon box. He can take it straight there, right? When, when we have those categories kind of straightened out in, our, in the room, we can just kind of put those, those things right where they go immediately. That's what we want to do in this next little section of the sermon. I want to form some theological boxes for you so that way when you come across them in the book of James, you're going to be like, oh, I know exactly what to do with this. I know exactly, uh, I, I knew this was coming and I can think through it. So the first thing we're going to look at is James's theology of trials. 
James has a theology of trials. When we look in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials for us are often seen as hindrances to our faith, right? Obstacles that slow us down. We think if I didn't have these trials in my life, I would be a lot better Christian. If I wasn't going through this difficult thing here and that hard thing there, I'd be a better Christian, right? That's what we think. We even might think trials are punishment, right? We might think, man, this is a punishment from God. How many times have you said to somebody who seems like they're really blessed in life, you said to them, man, you must be doing something right. You must be living right. We say that, don't we? Or on vice versa, when you go through something difficult, you say, well, what did I do wrong to deserve this, right? Because we think trials are punishments from God sometimes or that they're hindrances to our faith. James says the opposite. He says in verse, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 4, verse 3, You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James takes our theology of trials and says, let me flip that upside down for you. Not only are trials not bad, they're actually good and they're what God uses. Therefore, you should be happy that you go through trials. Count it joy that you face something difficult because God's going to use that to make you a more complete Christian. It's like a coach making you do burpees at practice so that way you do better in the game on Friday night, right? It's, it's like God using those trials to make you better and more prepared for life. So James gives us a theology of trials, and I'm sure all of us can already say, amen, I face trials in my life. I face trials in my life. James is practical. Number two, James gives us a theology of riches, a theology of riches. James follows in the footsteps of Jesus, who speaks of the dangers that come along in the human life with riches. Right? The Bible speaks of riches. Riches aren't bad in and of themselves, but the love of them is very dangerous. It's the root of all evil, as the Bible says. So James follows along with that. Particularly, he speaks of the difficulties that riches bring to the body of Christ. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about, um, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Show no partiality, partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing... And say, you sit here in this nice place while you say to the poor man, stand over there, sit by my feet. Right? He's giving this example of being showing favoritism based on riches. And he's already warning us, hey, riches can cause ripples in the body of Christ. It can cause a divide. So be careful with it. Don't show partiality. Don't pretend like somebody's better based on what they wear, what they have, where they live, what they drive. Very practical, right? We all do that. Consciously or unconsciously, we tend to treat people differently, don't we? We treat people differently based on their education, how many letters is after their name, um, what, what they've done in life, what they've accomplished. James warns against that. He warns against favoritism, particularly that comes from riches. So there is a theology of riches in this book. There's also a theology of words in this book. The classic, be slow to speak, 
slow to anger and quick to listen comes from the book of James. You can just take that verse in and of itself. Imagine living by that and you can say, yeah, my life would be better if I would stop talking as much, if I would listen more and I'd quit being angry, right? You do those three things and life's going to improve. But he has a lot to say about words. He talks about even the fact that we will sometimes in chapter three, um, where you see that heading taming the tongue, he talks about how sometimes we use the word of God to curse our brother. And then the next minute, praise God, raise a hand to hallelujah, right? After we've cursed our brother, he says that shouldn't be that should not happen. Similar to like if you heard somebody cuss, you might say, and you kiss your mama with that mouth. Right. That's what James is saying to us. How can you use your mouth to curse and to bless? So there's a theology of words in the book of James. There's a a theology of wisdom in the book of James. There's a way that God wants us to live and a way that the world tells us we should live. If you look at chapter 3, verse 16, it talks about how um, uh, he says this wisdom is uh, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Verse, four, verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. Man, have you noticed that in your life? When there's selfishness in your life, jealousy in your life, it does lead to disorder, chaos, trouble in your life. James says, hey, there's a, there's a way to live that's wiser than that. He talks about friendship with the world is actually being an enemy of God. Where do you get your wisdom? How do you know what to do in life? Wisdom is a guiding force in your life that says this is what you should do and shouldn't do. Where do you get your wisdom? Where do you pull your wisdom from? Is it the world or is it the Lord? There's a theology of where wisdom comes from in this book. There's a theology of works. Chapter 2, one of the most gut-punching passages in all the Bible, right? James says there's faith and there's works. And a lot of times we think faith is what we think, right? But James says no. Faith is actually what you do also. He says, if you tell me you have faith, but you don't have any works that come along with that, what good is that faith that's useless, that's pointless? He says, even the demons say they believe in God. You're doing as much as them if you just say you believe. He says, if you just believe and you don't work, you're not justified, which really makes my, you know, my Protestant heart just oh, it makes me uncomfortable when James says things like, if you don't work, you're not justified, right? Because the Protestant Reformation was all about, we're not justified by works. But James seems to say, you are justified by works, which we're going to tackle that in a few weeks. So to be continued on that. Um, but he says, faith, just sitting there doing nothing but believing something is not the way it goes. So we see these several snapshots of James and you can really see he's got practical theology. You can see a lot of these situations, there's even more than what I mentioned just now. All these situations are stuff that you probably see on a regular basis in your life. Whether that's showing favoritism, whether that's saying one thing one day and saying something else the next day, you can see how James really applies to your life. But why does James talk this way? Why does he provide all of these different snapshots of theology for us to engage with? Well, number three, this is the third part of our sermon today. We've seen the background of James, the theology of James. Now we're going to see the purpose of James. The purpose of James is perfection. 
The purpose of James is perfection. If you're taking notes, pause before you finish that sentence, right? Because we're going to replace that word in a moment. The purpose of James is perfection. Chapter 1, verse 4 says it this way, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. That you may be perfect. This is what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So James's purpose is that you would be perfect. So all of us right now are probably tuning out saying, well, I can't do that, right? That's impossible. Well, wait a moment, because I think we need to understand what that word perfect means for James. James is using this Greek word telos, which really means something more like complete. Other times in the New Testament when that word telos is used, it's translated as mature. So James's goal isn't that you would just be like morally perfect. It's that you would be complete or that you would be whole. The 2007 Patriots and the 2017 Browns have something in common. They both had perfect records. Okay? The 2007 Patriots won every single game. The 2017 Browns lost every single game. Both are perfect records, right? Both are perfect. Why are they both perfect? Because they're both whole, complete, right? The, the Patriots only had wins. The Browns only had losses, right? They were complete in that they were always all the same, right? So you can see how when we use the word perfect or complete, right, we think of moral perfection, um, which is a good thing. But James is really talking about being complete, being a whole person, not being fractured. Here's what James wants to do. So if you were, if you were going to... If you're writing out that statement, the purpose of James is perfection. Really, I think the purpose of James is wholeness. He wants to see wholeness in your life because inside each and every single one of you, there are gaps. There are gaps that exist for you. Here's what I mean by that. We live fractured, inconsistent lives at times. We say one thing one day and then we do something different the next. Or we say something different the next. We believe one thing in our hearts. And then there's a gap between what we do in our lives. We treat people differently based on what we can get from them. James wants to span that gap in your life and make a connection between your inner person, what you believe, and your outer person, the way you live. James wants to make that connection and make you a whole believer. W-H-O-L-E, right? Whole, a complete believer. And James really says it's, it's, that that has worked out like this, letting your faith work out in your life. What you believe needs to be lived out in your life. Faith that works. That's really how you can sum up this whole book of James. Faith that works. He wants us to be whole. He wants us to be complete. And if we think of the, the whole The the perfect person, the whole person, really, James wants us to be like Jesus, if you want to say it that way. He's describing in this book lots of different ways that we're meant to live, and Jesus perfectly embodied every single one of those things. There was never an inconsistency in his character, never a lapse of judgment. He always thought, said, did the right thing. His heart always matched his words, his actions. He never said one thing and meant another. Right? Jesus was the perfect person, the whole person, the complete person that James wants you to be. 
So as we read the book of James, really, James is just starting to paint a picture of what it looks like to be Jesus on an everyday basis. You know, Jesus doesn't curse people and then bless the Lord. Jesus doesn't show favoritism. Jesus doesn't get his wisdom from the world, right? He's painting this picture of Jesus. And as we go through the book of James, what we want to do is say, let's look at the picture James paints of Jesus, and then let's try to emulate that that um, that picture. So that brings us down to the nitty gritty of our journal. So as we go through our journals, I'm going to encourage you to do these four prompts as you come and get your journals. I'm in a little bit. There's going to be this little paper. I want you to grab this paper too. Stick it in your journal. These are uh, four writing prompts for journaling. Okay. Um, so the way that you'll you can use these journals is next week we're going to look at the uh, James chapter one um, through eighteen one through eighteen. What I want you to do is. Before next Sunday, if you're part of the, the journaling crew, um, read through that passage and then think about, write about these four prompts. One is, what is the issue James is addressing? What's the real life nitty gritty issue James is talking about? Two, how does James suggest you live in that situation? Three, have you ever struggled with this in your life? Has this been a struggle for you and, and in what ways? And then four, how is Jesus the perfect example of how you should live that truth? So four writing prompts. What's the issue? What does James say you should do? How have you struggled to do that? And how does Jesus do that perfectly? How does Jesus do that perfectly? So grab that when you head out. And I'm praying that by the end of this book, we can look at our lives and say, I'm a little bit more whole. I'm a little bit more complete. There's a little bit more connection between my inner self and my outer self. Another way to say it is you could say, that you've surrendered everything to Jesus, that you've surrendered every part. There's probably parts of your life, parts of your being where you're like, I'll give Jesus this part of my life, but I really want to keep this part and live it. But really, James is saying, you need to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. Let's pray.